Today is the second Sunday in Lent. We want to take this time uh, to talk a little bit over the next few weeks about a certain thing that is uh, very dear to our heart, and that is the confession of our faith, the proclamation of our faith to the world as we just sang in this hymn. The church, as I said earlier, has always found it helpful to create creeds and confessions around which we can all agree on the important things. Those of you that have been in our theology class know we talk about the cone of certainty. What are the things that are really up in the top of the cone of certainty? Everything's not in the top. There are some things that are essential and there are other things that are secondary and tertiary and on down the the list. Everything in Scripture is important, but not everything in Scripture is uh, agreed upon by everyone. But there are certain things that the church universal, whether you're Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox or whether you're a Protestant of one variety or another, we all agree on certain things. And what uh, we're going to spend the next, at least the next five sessions that I'm going to preach to you will be on this theme of the path to glory. The path to glory. The glory of God, uh, first of all. And second of all, the glory of man. Now when we think of the glory of man, a lot of us start to get nervous. We're not supposed to have any glory. But that's not what the Scriptures teach us. The glory of God, very simply, without getting into too much uh, theology, the the glory of God is His significance, His weightiness, His uh, His meaning to the world, as, as we see it, as we experience it, as we understand the glory. It's His truest self and His truest revelation. It's all that He is, His holiness, His perfections, His beauty, all wrapped up into glory. And that revulgence, that brightness, is not just light brightness, sometimes people would actually see light, but it is the, the manifestation of all that is God Himself in Himself. It's His self-revelation. It's why when people uh, saw the glory of God, they would hide their eyes. It's why the angels in heaven take their wings and hide their eyes to keep the revulgence of that glory from consuming them. That's how intense it is. Even for a holy creature like an angel or seraphim, how much more for a human being. And yet there is a glory in man that is similar. That God invested in each and every one of us. Each and every human being. That imago Dei, the image of God. His own image. And somehow, mysteriously, He transferred something about the glory of His own glory to humans that we carry with us in a unique way that nothing else carries. And we have to be aware of that. And the path to that glory is what we're going to talk about over the next few weeks. Adam and Eve, in the Bible story, very quickly... This is just introductory because I want to get us all on the same page. Adam and Eve tried to obtain more glory than what was given to them. They reached out and they took something that God had forbidden them to take, knowledge of good and evil from the tree, and they tried to take that so they would be like God. In other words, they would, they would take whatever glory He had given them was not enough for them. They wanted to go a little further. And that's what got them and what gets us 
into trouble today. You see, we also have a glory. We have a significance. We have meaning. We have purpose. Our deepest longings, those things that we long for, are to uh, satisfy us and be our glory. It's our truest self. And unfortunately, we lost that. But we didn't lose it entirely. You see, God in His grace when He told Adam and Eve, on the day you eat this fruit, you shall surely die, what happened to them? Did they die? Say no. Don't tell me they died spiritually because that's not what it says. They did not die. They lived. And furthermore, He clothed them with skins of animals. Now, did something happen to them? Did they die spiritually? Say yes. Yes, they did. But you don't find that out till later. You don't get the whole picture till later. You don't really know what's happened to them, but you know something bad happened to them because they're expelled from the garden and where the glory of God was immediately present, now it is no longer immediately present. They can't get back into the garden because there's an angel there with a sword keeping them out away from that glory because it would have consumed them. And God in His grace left that vestige in each and every one of us, everyone who carries the Imago Dei. And so we read in Psalm 8, probably the most familiar passage to everyone, is man, the psalmist is is asking this, this question. His mind is so taken with this idea of glory. He says, what is man that you are mindful of Him, or the Son of Man that you care for Him. He's talking about us human beings. What, what it, what, why? Why do you care about us the way you do? Why have you invested in us the way you do? You made us, he, He's talking to God, He says, you made us a little lower than the heavenly beings, yet you crowned us, listen, with glory and honor. Therefore, Folks, we are always seeking glory. And make no mistake, God wants you seeking that glory. The first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism is what? What is it, Presbyterians? What? No, that's not what it says. What is the chief end of man? And what is it? Let's all say it together. Let's sing it together. Okay? I'm going to give it to you. Man's chief end. Stomp your foot. Man's chief end is to glorify God, to glorify God, and to enjoy Him forever. All together now. Man's chief end. No, okay. <laughs> Never mind. I forgot I was in a Presbyterian church for a minute. Oh my goodness, might, might actually do something fun for a few minutes. Of course, it's, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We were made for that. In fact, all the creation was made for that, but we have it in a special way, and so we're always seeking it. We want to be seeking it. Problem is what? We seek it in all the wrong places. We look for it in money, in career, in status, in fame, in power, in approval, in our families. We try to squeeze it out of our children, and in so doing, we crush them to death. We try to get glory from our kids. Look at how great my kids are. Look at how perfect they are. Look at how good grades they are. And we start to get identity from them. Look at what a great marriage, I look at what a great career, look at what my education, look at the degrees, the letters behind my name, on and on. Look at how much theology, look where I went to school. We just go go on and on and on it goes. And we try to eke out of those things glory. And that's exactly the sin that took our, our parents down, Adam and Eve, and it takes us down. Sometime every day. You can take good things and make them bad by making them glory to you. 
It's unhealthy. It doesn't mean that you don't care about anything. You should be seeking it. But not to give you your ultimate glory and your ultimate identity. That has to come from somewhere else. So we're going to take five weeks very quickly uh, today, but five weeks, and look at just this one passage. This maybe the original confession or creed in the Bible. And if you take this and you set it side by side with the Apostles' Creed, you're going to be amazed at how much of this Scripture informed the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed and the other early creeds of the church. They didn't just come out with this stuff out of midair. They went to the Bible and they got their, their marching orders for their creeds and confessions and why we're happily a creedal and confessional church. So here's five weeks Um, Let me give you the outline for the five weeks and then we'll go into the first one. Manifested in the flesh. We're going to talk about the incarnation. I know it's not Christmas. We're going to talk about the incarnation in a very specific way. Secondly, vindicated by the Spirit. Justification. Justified. Vindicated. The third one, seen by angels. In other words, physically seen by the angels as He was in the flesh. Talking about Jesus. The revelation of Christ the man. Uh, fourth, uh, uh, yes, fourth, proclaimed among the nations and believed on in the world. Now I'm putting these two together because I don't think we can separate them and I'll explain in a few weeks why. A celebration of what Scott mentioned earlier. A celebration of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. A celebration. And then finally, the last week, we'll talk about taken up into glory. The glorification of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are all familiar with the incarnation, the Christmas story, and of course His life and all of that. And then we get to the resurrection. That's really big. We all understand the resurrection. But we we in the Protestant church, we downplay the ascension of Jesus. We don't really celebrate because we don't have a feast day for it. But I'm going to break some rules and we'll have a feast day. We won't eat anything. We'll just have a feast day. For the ascension of our Lord Jesus and what that meant. And His session in glory. You see, He just didn't float up into the sky. When He passed out of their sight, He went somewhere. And if you ever hear R.C. Sproul's sermon on this, it will change your life forever. Of when Jesus stepped out of this world and into the next, and was greeted by a host of beings and people and His own Father standing up from the throne and handing His Son the scepter of righteousness and declaring once and for all and forever, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Now that should send chills up your back to know that Almighty God stood and handed our Savior the scepter of rule and reign in this world. Amazing. The glorification of Christ. So let's look quickly today at this idea of Him being manifest or the Greek word is is phanerao. It means simply to reveal It is a word for incarnation. A word for becoming human. And he's talking about his his revelation, the revealing of Jesus Christ as a human being. Almost no one in this room is going to have a problem understanding that Jesus, all of us are, you know, we're pretty orthodox and we all believe that Jesus was God and that He was God in the flesh. But it's the flesh part that bothers us. 
We don't really believe that Jesus was a human being like us. Because we have these images of Him uh, that, that, are, that are mythical. In other words, He has perfect hair, perfect teeth, perfect skin. He looks like some cartoon. He doesn't look like a real human being. We don't think He had any cheap, cheap, uh, chip teeth. We don't see Him with uh, uh, splinters. We don't see Him with a broken finger uh, because He might have smashed His thumb with a hammer. We don't see Him having tooth decay. We never see Jesus getting a cold or having the flu or laying on a bed with a fever. Oh, it couldn't happen to Him because He was God. And that is to deny that as a heresy and to deny His humanity. He was as human as you and I. With all of the imperfections of that humanity. He was not Superman. He was not even Batman. And as my friend Ivan and I are trying to convince Raul, Batman is not a superhero. You know that, don't you, Raul? He's not a superhero, because why? He doesn't have superpowers. He just throws things and climbs up ropes and stuff. But Superman is a true superhero. But we get Jesus confused with these mythical figures that he's somehow... No, he had dirt under his fingernails, folks. He was a real man. A real human. He was thirsty. He was hungry. He felt intensely. He was, he was a man who knew and was acquainted with depression and grief. He knew what it was to live in sorrow and fear. Read your Gospels. He, he actually was terrorized, it says in the Garden of Eden, to the point where he almost fell apart. He was almost undone by the gaping hole that was there in front of him, the, whole, the hell in front of him. And it almost undid him. He got angry. He got angry at people's hard hearts and selfishness and their cruelty to one another. Jesus was a real man. And so let's read once again, quickly, this Scripture. We read it together, and I'll, but I want to do it again. Just listen. I'll read. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you, and if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Jesus was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory." So let's talk about this real quickly, three ways, and I'll, I'll do it fast. We won't keep you long. A marred visage, that's our first point. A marred visage. Secondly, a lost purpose. A lost purpose. And finally, our true glory. We're just going to look at these under these three heads. Hopefully it will help you kind of organize your thoughts. A marred visage, a lost purpose, and our true glory. What is the marred visage? Well, all of you know this little this little hit, uh, little ditty that we learned as kids. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men. What you say? Couldn't put Humpty together again. Yeah, he. That's what happened to man. We we were created beautiful and perfect, but we fell and we got broken and cracked. The Bible uses all different kinds of metaphors. Everything from sick and broken and cracked all the way to being dead and everything in between. All these different metaphors for what happened to us. doesn't just give us one picture. 
Gives us many pictures of what happened to us so that at different times, different needs, you can apply those metaphors to your life. Uh, one of my favorite, uh, new, newest favorite theologians, a Roman Catholic priest, uh, Scott introduced me to this guy, Father Thomas Hand. He's a, a brilliant Augustine scholar, and he wrote this book, Augustine on Prayer. I've mentioned it before. And, 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 and Father Hand says this, and he's channeling Augustine, Augustine okay? He's, he's, nobody's got it like this guy. It's kind of creepy. Uh, you, you'd think that he's uh, Augustine himself. But he says this, God made man. Man made sin. The Son of God came to destroy what man made and redeem and save what God made. You see, the incarnation, folks, is about Jesus coming. Every Christmas, I remind you, the trajectory of the whole Bible is from heaven to earth. God is always moving. He's always coming. He's always approaching. He's always pursuing. He's always looking, seeking, finding. He's always after you. He is never sitting back with His arms crossed uh, uh, cross and saying, no, I wonder what they'll do now. He's never indifferent. Never still. He's the ultimate ADD. He is always on. Always active. Never relents and never lets go. And Jesus came in the flesh as a human being. Manifest in the flesh. Incarnate for a specific purpose. Actually, for several, but I'm only going to give you three. One is to restore the relationship between God and man. That relationship is broken, folks. And if you don't know that, you don't understand the Bible. My goodness, our relationship with God is really messed up. I'm talking about humanity. And the Son of God was manifest in the flesh to restore that relationship. And if you, don't, if you don't start there, you can't go anywhere else in the Bible. You just can't get past it. And so, he came to restore that relationship between God and man. Listen to what the Apostle Paul said. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The icon. The icon of God. The firstborn of all creation. In Him, all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. Through Him, to reconcile, listen, to Himself, all things. Whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And now He's talking to you. He says, and you. You, who were once alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He now reconciled in the body of His flesh. He couldn't have done it otherwise. There could have been no atonement and no satisfaction if Jesus had not hung on a cross in your place and in my place. He didn't just hang up on the cross to give you a good example of how much God loves you. He paid a price. He paid a price we could not pay. He suffered a death we deserved, but He didn't. He substituted Himself for us. He got in front of the train and took the blow. He got in front of the bullet and took the blow. That is at the heart of our Christian faith, folks. He was manifest in the flesh. To do that, so that we would have complete access to God. He reconciled in His body by His death. Here, listen, in order... For this reason, to present you 
holy, blameless, above reproach. You know, I could tell you story after story about myself. I don't want to talk about you. I know all this, your stories and they're pretty bad. But I wouldn't want to do that because, you know, I'd, you'd get mad at me and anyway, not right. But I could tell you stories about myself and I can assure you that I was not wholly blameless or above reproach. I mean, my, my friend Ivan, I picked him up this morning. Ivan said, yes, you look good. You clean up really good. And we do. We clean up good. And on Sunday, we, really, we double clean. We even shampoo our hair twice. Whatever's left of it. Mine's, mine's going fast. Um, think about this, folks. Who can say they're blameless? Who can stand before God and say, I'm blameless. I, I'm, I'm good. We can't. But He came to do that. And He came in His flesh to do it. It was manifest in the flesh to do that very thing. And then to restore not only our relationship with God, but relationship between people. When we were dead in our trespasses and sins, we were made alive with Christ, he says. By grace, this is Paul in Ephesians 2, by grace you've been saved. He himself is our peace. In other words, the peace that should exist between all of us, he is our peace. He made us both one. He's talking about racial and Every, every other kind of, of hatred and indifference, religious or otherwise, that people have for one another, he's saying he broke down all those walls. In other words, what he's saying is this, folks. He's saying he wanted to make us one. He's broken down in his flesh, in his flesh, there it is again, all the walls of hostility. He's simply saying this, that when you look around the world and you see from Muslim to Buddhist to Hindu to Democrat, and many Republicans, God help us. I mean, come on, folks. We, no matter who you look at, what he's saying, no matter what kind of feelings you have, he's saying you can, you can actually have peace with them. Folks, we are called to love our enemies. How much more our friends? How much more people that are really like us? Our fellow citizens or fellow church people? And yet in churches you find we kill, we kill, destroy everybody that gets in our way. You cross somebody in church, they'll never forgive you. And I know because I've counseled some of you. <laughs> we never forgive. We never let go. We hold grudges to the grave. Yes? Admit it. Come on. Boy, you guys are hard and core today. Well, I do. I know what it's like to hold a grudge and not to want to let go. He made peace in His flesh. <laughs> that's, the, that's the price tag He put on peace for us to love one another and care for one another in spite of and because of our differences. His flesh. Let's not let anything come between us. And He restored our true humanity. Our whole humanity. The true us. We find our glory. Colossians 1.27 All the journey folks have learned this. You had to memorize it. The glorious mystery hidden from all the ages now revealed. What is it journey guys? Christ what? Christ in us the hope of what? Glory. That is where you're going to find your true glory. Listen kids, those of you that are young, you're in school still, make the best grades you can. Try for the best career you have. Work hard. Try to make sure your sports team wins and beats everybody into the ground. Yes, that's good. All good. Nothing wrong with that. But kids, it's too late for us old people. We're, gone. We're lost causes. But there's hope for you. 
Don't get your glory from that. Don't let those things define who you are because, listen to me, young people, you're better than that. You're better than who wins a soccer game. You're better than who gets an A or a B. Do you hear what I'm saying? You're better than that. You're of much more value than that. The value is indescribable. And if you fix your sights on that glory and drill it down into your heart now in your young age, then you can achieve great things for God and they won't destroy you in the meantime. Amen? They won't take you down. So if you get a B, it's not the end of the world. You work a little harder. You make the A or whatever it is. You don't get the job you wanted, or you don't marry the person you wanted, or something doesn't come just right. It doesn't destroy you like it has all of us older people. And we're spending our lives trying to climb out of the hole. You can be a different generation. So I plead with you, don't get your glory there. He restores our true humanity. We can find our glory in something else. Career is important. Money is important. Your marriage, your family, all important. And you want them to be the best they can be. But when you try to eke out your identity from those things, they will betray you. They will become an idol that will never be satisfied. That idol will always say, more, more, more. I need more sacrifices. I need more blood. I need you to pay more and more. And you keep sacrificing. I did it. I sacrificed my family and my children on the altar of my work, my job. And I paid. And they paid. And even today, we pay. And it wasn't until I found the ultimate price paid that I could begin to restore my children, my wife, and myself. Do you see it? If you do that, nothing can take you down. And you can still achieve great things. They don't own you. You don't become a slave to them. They serve you and they serve God's purpose instead of you serving and bowing down to them to what Isaiah called a block of wood. Why would you do that? Why would you worship a block of wood? Don't do it. Stop that. A lost purpose. He restored our true purpose. I don't have time to go through all of it, but very quickly, our purpose was lost. We were to be stewards of God's creation, not owners. And yet human beings, all of us, tend to treat the creation around us as if it belongs to us, yes? We exploit it. We exploit the creation. And so I've told my journey group for years when I'm discipling these men that someday we are going to stand before God and God is going to ask us a question. He's going to come and He's going to say, I have a question for you. I have a question for you. I planted a whole bunch of redwood trees up there in this beautiful place. I would like to know where they are. And we're going to say, oh, well, we did a lot of great things. We made decks for our big house. We, you know, we made a, a, a sauna. We did great things. And you know what God's going to say to us? Great. I'm so glad you did something good. You made a baseball bat. I love baseball. Why didn't you plant a few extra trees? Why don't you take care of your world? But you see, folks, politics and the political polarization in our country has let parties rob the truth from what the Bible says. We were to care for a garden. Yeah, we're supposed to use what God gave us. We were supposed to rule and dominate the world and animals and things like that. But what were we supposed to also be doing at the same time? 
What? Caring for it. Stewarding it. Taking care of it. Making sure they don't kill the last tiger that ever existed so that it's gone to make Chinese ancient medicine out of. I mean, what are we thinking? And we do it every day. And I'm telling you folks, we have got to regain our sense of of stewardship, of caring for the creation, caring for people. There was a time when Christians were known for building orphanages and hospitals and schools. And today it's it's getting harder and harder. It's almost like we've lost our vision. And part of it is because we think the world's going to just disappear and we're all going to get raptured. We don't believe in the Incarnation. We don't believe that the world was made for us. We believe, how many of you believe heaven is your home? Uh, trick question, but I'm just going to try. How many of you believe heaven is your home? Come on, raise your hands. If you believe that, heaven is your home. Okay, I'm going to tell you, I'm your pastor and I know more than you. Heaven is not your home. Where is your home? Earth is your home. Heaven is what? Look, look, heaven is not your home. Heaven is God's home. He built the earth for you and I. And He takes us there because He doesn't want you to be left in a grave. He doesn't want you to be in a grave in the dark, decaying. He takes you to heaven so that you can be where He is until what? Until He restores the earth and He comes back with glory. And He's not going to come back to visit. He's coming back to renew all of creation and live with us forever. So we are to be stewards of the creation. Jesus' incarnation means your work matters. Stewardship matters, but your work matters. He had dirt under His fingernails. Don't think, oh, I just wish I could get out of this job or I can't wait till I retire or I hate my job. Some jobs are difficult. Maybe you need to change. But you know what? Don't be afraid of your work. Love your work. We were made to work. We were made to work all our lives. Work is good. The incarnation teaches us. Jesus manifested in the flesh teaches us that work is good. He was a carpenter. He was a fisherman. He was a common laborer. He, did, he never let the grass grow under his feet. He was busy working, doing his father's work. Our bodies matter. We should be taking care of our bodies. I'm not talking about just physically taking care of our bodies, but seeing that human bodies matter. Healing, health, disease, doctors, all good. And today, somehow we, we get this theology on TV and other places where if you go to a doctor, something's wrong with your faith. Well, that's crazy. How do you know the doctors are not there to supply you the providential care that you need to be healed? Does God always heal? Another trick question, but I'm hoping you'll kind of follow. Today's weird, right? Because I'm asking trick questions. I never do that. Does God always heal? Yes, He does. Yes. When is the final healing? When? In the resurrection. Not when you die in the resurrection. Way to go. AC, you've redeemed yourself for a lot of those other questions. Well done. He always heals. The resurrection is the proof of it. Always. 100% of the time. I have cancer. I've, I, well, I'm in 
I'm, I'm better. And I know that I'm going to be healed. I'm either going to get healed through chemotherapy, but ultimately I'm going to get healed where? In the resurrection. My body matters to Jesus. He looks at my body and he says, I love his body. Now I know you don't love my body, but he loves my body. And he loves your body too. He's not going to leave you in the grave. None of you who trust Him will ever see the inside of a grave. Never. Well, I'm going to die. Your body will die, but you will not see the inside of that grave. He saw the inside of a grave. So you wouldn't have to. And the moment your eyes close in death, there will be angels gathering you up and carrying you into glory, into heaven. And you will be there dancing with the angels and getting ready to come back to your home on earth recreated heaven and earth and relationships he wants to build those as well finally where do we find our true glory our true glory is in a person not a thing it's in a person not a place it's in a person not a dollar amount of money it's in a person and that person is Jesus Christ and we know that because he was listen manifest in the flesh he came as a human being we know that he means to restore this material world in a way that we cannot even imagine and here's how we know because the trajectory is always from heaven to earth let me give it to you and you'll see it beginning Middle, end of your Bible. Beginning, middle, end of your Bible. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the Spirit of God hovered or came down and hovered over the chaos, the tohu v'bohu. He hovered over it and He said, let there be light and order came out of chaos and creation began to take effect. Middle of your Bible. In the beginning was the Word. In Arche Eis Hologos. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And the final, the end of your Bible, front, middle, end. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice. Listen to what the voice says. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be His people. God Himself will be with them as their God. He Himself, in Greek, it's an emphasis, He Himself will wipe away every tear from their eye. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Will you trust Him? 
Will you trust Him with your glory and for your glory? Will you let Him be the one who comes to you, manifest in the flesh, to take away and wipe away every tear? That's what you have to ask yourself. If you're a Christian already, you still have to believe the Gospel, yes? Every day, every minute of every day, you have to believe it. And if you're not a Christian, if you're here today and you're going, I don't know, believe it. Put your trust in Him right now, today. And He will come down, manifest Himself to you in the flesh by the power of His Spirit. I pray you'll do it. Father, um, thank You for Your kindness and Your mercy and Your grace. We have so many things in our lives we don't know how to manage them sometimes. But we know that You love us and care for us and have pursued us all our lives. You've never let us go. We've turned our backs and rejected You. We've only turned around and found You there facing us again. And when we turn away again, You're there again. You never have let go of those You love. And I pray, Father, that this day, as we begin this holy season of 